Welcome. Thanks for tuning in to Grand Rounds, Connecticut Children's Office of Continuing Medical Education Pediatric Podcast. This podcast series will assist in developing new skill sets based on recent pediatric advances in a wide variety of specialties, identifying evidence-based data to support improved outcomes in pediatric healthcare delivery, increasing knowledge about research with implications for clinical practice. And now, here's Grand Rounds. Morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to Grand Rounds. This is truly a very special day for Connecticut Children's. Uh, we have a very important person that is, uh, will be joining us in, in just a minute. I'm going to introduce uh, Admiral Levine. Uh, before I start, though, I, I do want to make sure that we, uh, we take a moment to recognize the, the suffering that is uh, currently uh, going on in, in Turkey and Syria after a devastating uh, earthquake. Uh, and I know uh, some of our team members have, uh, are, are from Turkey, uh, have family members. Uh, all, those of you in the community, uh, you know, obviously our condolences if you have lost someone. And Connecticut Children's will be uh, standing behind each one of you and in the community. So as, as time goes on, we'll provide uh, proper guidance in how to uh, make yourself useful, uh, either through donations, et cetera. So again, uh, our hearts go out to, uh, to the people in Turkey and Syria for this uh, tragedy. Uh, it's unfortunate that it, that it happened. Um, but, but here today we, we are really uh, in celebration because we have uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Admiral Rachel Levine, uh, someone that um, I have met before. Uh, we had a, a Zoom call uh, uh, about a year and a half ago, and it was, uh, it was a memorable moment for me meeting her and understanding uh, what she stands for, the health advocacy, and what she does for pediatrics. And she's a pediatrician. Uh, so no one better to come give grand rounds on a topic of improving public health through engagement beyond the clinical setting than a pediatrician who is at the top of the of the health services system in the government. Uh, a brief introduction uh, for, for Admiral Levine. Her CV is, is long and uh, with uh, multiple, multiple accolades. But I, 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 what I will say is that she graduated from Harvard College uh, and Tulane University School of Medicine. Uh, she completed her training in pediatrics and adolescent medicine at Mount Sinai Medical Center in New York City, where she was also a chief resident. And just before the meeting started, we, we were having a conversation at, uh, of, you know, what were the tough moments for her in her career? And she obviously mentioned uh, the pandemic in 2020. Uh, but more importantly, she said the chief resident year at, at Mount Sinai was the, was the most difficult one. And one of the things that was much more difficult is that uh, uh, they were very busy and she had to call the, uh, the, the surgeon in chief and tell the surgeon in chief that he had no, no, no bets to do some of his selective surgery. So Dr. Fink, who's here, uh, this, this happens everywhere. And, and so uh, you can tell that, you know, that sometimes is difficult for me to tell you, you can't do surgery. And Dr. Levine actually attests to that. Uh, she was a professor of pediatrics and psychiatry at the Penn State College of Medicine. Uh, her previous post included vice chair for clinical affairs for the Department of Pediatrics and chief of the division of adolescent medicine and eating disorders at the Penn State Hershey Medical Center. In 2015, the Pennsylvania governor, Tom Wolf, nominated Admiral Levine to be Pennsylvania's physician general. And in March of 2018, Admiral Levine was named Pennsylvania's Secretary of Health. I don't think she knew what was going to happen in 2020. During 2020 until January 23rd, 2021, Admiral Levine led the public health response of COVID-19 in Pennsylvania as the State Secretary of Health. It was one of the ones, at least one of the states that did the best job, and it certainly attributed to Dr. Levine. Uh, Admiral Levine is a member of the National Academy of Medicine, as a fellow of the American Academy of Pediatrics and the Society for Adolescent Health Medicine and the Academy of Eating Disorders. Uh, she's currently the Assistant Secretary for Health and since March 26, 2021. 
She's also a four-star admiral in the United States Public Health Service Commission Corps. Uh, she oversees health human services, key public health offices and program, number of presidential advisory committees, 10 regional health offices, the office of the Surgeon General in the US Public Health Service Commission in Corps. She is very focused on serving LGBTQ population. So not very busy, as you can see, of what she has to do. And so we are really honored and pleased that she accepted our invitation to be our ground round speaker. So Admiral Levine, thank you for being here. Please, the podium is yours. Well, thank you very much. I'm very pleased to be here. Thank you for that introduction. And thank you also for recognizing the suffering happening in Turkey and Syria. And our, our thoughts and prayers go out to them and, and to anyone who's been impacted by that tragedy. Um, so as a pediatrician, I'm very pleased to be here at Connecticut Children's Hospital. And it's my honor to be here with you today. And my pleasure to offer some remarks about how we as pediatricians, nurses, nurse practitioners, other healthcare providers, mental health providers, can expand our work beyond the immediate clinical setting to advance the cause of public health, especially for children and adolescents and their families. I want to propose that a culture of care that we have as pediatricians and other providers for children and their families doesn't have to be restricted to the hospital setting. Expanding our awareness of our patients' needs and their families' needs brings us into contact with many ways in which the society around us impacts their well-being. So by proactively engaging with the social and environmental world that defines our patients' lives, we can help them in terms of preventative care, acute care, chronic care, and other very impactful issues that, that affect our children and their families. So I was called to medicine, as many of you were, I'm sure all of you were, by my desire to help people and to work towards the common good. Our medical education gives us important skills and what makes us physicians, nurses, psychiatrists, psychologists, and other medical professionals though, is our choice to spend our days, and as we all know, many of our nights, helping our fellow human beings live well. Medicine is about saving lives and about improving the quality of life. We're there for emergencies, we're there for pandemics, and we're there whenever our, children, our patients and our families need us to make sure that the sick get better and have healthy people, healthy children stay healthy. And we make sure that those who need our professional help receive that help no matter who they are or no matter the life circumstances that they have. We treat patients and their families without discrimination. We work every day to benefit the sick, protect people from harm, and make our community whole. And we do that with medicine, we do that through public health, and we can do that and we should do that always with warmth, empathy, compassion, and understanding. Well, our communities need healing right now and our nation needs healing now more than ever. My decades in medicine have made me acutely aware of the importance of a holistic view in terms of patient care. And as you know, again, I was a pediatrician in academic medicine, and adolescent medicine specialists and developed a program for the treatment of young people with eating disorders, such as anorexia and bulimia and other eating disorders. And as you know, disordered eating has many different ideologies, including biological ideology, psychological issues, but also societal issues. There are many forms this can take. And so one issue that I'd like to bring to your attention, where young people need our help and their families need our help and our fellow providers need our help, is in terms of providing gender-affirming care for transgender and non-binary youth. Today, many people living in this country need our attention because they're being attacked and see few places to turn. Lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, and intersex Americans, especially our youth, 
are very challenged at this time and are attempting suicide at an alarming rate. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, Adolescent Behaviors and Experiences Survey, covering January to June 2021, published April 1st of 2022, one in four teenagers who identified as LGBTQI plus reported attempting suicide in the first half of 2021. That many, one in four, attempted suicide. And just as alarming, 46.8%, almost 47% of teens who said that they were LGBT considered, considered a suicide attempt during that time. They had suicidal ideation during that time. Compared to cisgender heterosexual students, LGBTQ plus respondents reported higher percentages of poor mental health during the pandemic, persistent feelings of sadness and hopelessness, and fewer connections with others at school. There was a brief in the Journal of Adolescent Health in September 2020 entitled, the way they do that in adolescent medicine, I'm kind of stuck at home right now with unsupportive parents, LGBTQ youth experience with COVID-19 and the importance of online support. The brief found that LGBTQ youth were facing considerable additional stressors while at home and studying remotely, in addition to those faced by all of their peers. They were leery of conducting therapy sessions over the phone. They were unable to express themselves or live fully in their identities. And they were, as the paper's title suggests, feeling stuck at home with unsupportive parents and family members. The authors noted, given the potential for long-term physical distancing, we need to have concerted efforts to protect these youth. And the data suggests that we have a lot of work to do. Now, in the Trevor Project's 2022 national survey of LGBTQ youth, based on responses from almost 34,000 youth, found that 56% reported their mental health is poor most of the time or always due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, a Trevor Project survey from 2019 found that youth who had at least one supportive adult, I'll come back to this later, one supportive adult were 40% like, less likely, 40% less likely to have a suicide attempt. So it takes very little, one accepting adult, to significantly reduce the risk of LGBTQ plus youth and suicide. The health disparities experienced by LGBTQI plus people of color are often more inequitable than their white peers. A recent paper from the Williams Institute found that LGBTQI plus people of color were more likely to be uninsured, more likely to report poor or fair health, more likely to feel judgment in the healthcare setting. So reducing disparities in the LGBTQI plus community must take into account systemic racism, racism and implicit, implicit bias. We don't make progress unless we all make progress. The good news is that federal resources are becoming more available. In 2020, Congress designated the new 988 crisis line, which is operated by SAMHSA. It offers calls, texts, for young people, of course, and chat. Oops, excuse me. Drop the paper. Drop the mic. No, no, drop the paper. <laughs> it offers calls, texts, and chat access to trained crisis counselors who can help people experiencing suicidal thoughts, substance use issues, and mental or emotional distress. This is a tremendous resource for all of us to offer to our patients and their families. Now, Surgeon General Vivek Murthy, who I work with very closely, has spoken often of the need for more effective mental health supports and published an advisory in 2021 entitled Protecting Youth Mental Health. 
In October 2022, SAMHSA announced more than $100 million in funds through the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act for states and territories to improve mental health services, and more than $300 million to support and expand certified community behavioral health clinics, which provide crisis services and behavioral health. Just last month, HHS Health Resources and Services Administration, HRSA, announced awards of nearly $60 million to integrate mental health services into primary care clinician training with a focus on preparing primary care providers to treat youth mental health. Now, in terms of transgender youth and gender non-binary youth, numerous peer-reviewed journals have noted that there is nothing inherent with being transgender that predisposes youth to negative mental health outcomes. It is the bullying, the harassment, and discrimination that transgender youth face that leads to these conditions. Transgender youth who are supported by their parents, school, and community, who receive evidence-based standard of care treatment actually have excellent mental health outcomes. Gender-affirming care is medical care. Gender-affirming care is mental health care, and literally, gender-affirming care is suicide prevention care. In a collection of 16 studies highlighted last year by Stanford, trans youth who received gender-affirming care reported lower depression rates, higher mental health quality, and less suicidality than peers without care. In February of last year, a paper in JAMA Network Open found that trans and non-binary youth who went on puberty blockers or hormones had 60% lower odds of depression and 73% lower odds of suicidality over a 12-month period. A recent NIH-funded two-year study conclusively demonstrated that gender-affirming care and hormone therapy improves the, the lives of non-binary and transgender adolescents, and these papers are available in the New England Journal of Medicine. Thus, the American Medical Association, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Psychiatric Association, the Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, the Endocrine Society, the Pediatric Endocrine Society, the Society for Adolescent Health and Medicine, and the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, among other professional organizations, agree that gender-affirming care is medically necessary, safe, and effective for transgender and non-binary children and adolescents. And the process is tailored to individuals, of course, with parental input. We do not need laws that dictate principles of transgender medical care. What we need is a more proactive outreach to the public to dispel the myths that have unfortunately started to crowd out the reality about this treatment. So I'm here today to make the case that we as doctors and other health professionals should offer ourselves as informational resources for youth and their families, but also in the community to teachers, to principals, to professional organizations, public recreation centers, com uh, um, county commissioners and more who would benefit from having this information. Please seek opportunities to speak about what the science says and about what you know. Our task is to educate the public in as many forms as possible and to have those conversations that questions the assumptions that are underlying the attacks on trans people. Now I'm gonna switch gears and talk about another issue which is very prominent and under my portfolio at the Department of Health and Human Services. And that is long COVID. We need to educate the public and dispel misinformation that applies to long COVID. Long COVID is real. Long COVID impacts children, their families, adults, and really our entire nation. And it's not one condition. It is a set of infection-associated conditions that probably has many potentially overlapping entities with perhaps different biological causes, different sets of risk factors and outcomes. 
I met with a group of adult long COVID uh, patients um, last week and another group yesterday and discussed the research questions that they have, the, the challenges that these patients and their families are facing, and then the policy implications of those challenges with a group of doctors and care providers yesterday at Yale and the, uh, a couple of days before with Senator Kane um, in Virginia, and Senator Kane himself has a neuropathy due to long COVID. This is a health equity issue as well because it impacts particularly communities that have faced long-standing health disparities, particularly communities of color, the African-American community, the Latino community, the American Indian Native Alaskan community, the AAPI community. So adult sufferers with limited economic resources find difficulties in getting effective treatment. We heard this specifically yesterday. Navigating health-related workplace and employment issues and finding understanding among their peers, and often understanding, finding it difficult to find understanding among their healthcare professionals. And uh, we heard many stories where they would, their, the initial physicians or other providers they saw told them that this wasn't real and that they were essentially uh, making this up, that they, that they were malingering. The direct risks of youth and adolescents for long COVID are also increasingly coming into sharper, sharper focus. A 2022 meta-analysis in the journal Current Opinions in Infectious Diseases entitled Long COVID in Children and Adolescents. Long COVID appears more common in female adolescents and in those with pre-existing physical and mental health problems at the time of infection. The paper makes a compelling case for the importance of a control group in studies involving COVID infection, the need for case definitions, and more research to understand the signs, symptoms, and outcomes in long COVID in children and adolescents. Now, my office, the Office of the Assistant Secretary of Health, is in the process of setting up an Office of Long COVID Research and Practice. And so we are working with um, many of our um, divisions at HHS um, in terms of providing supports and services. This includes actually the whole federal government, um, such as the Social Security Administration, the Department of Labor, and more, as well as the research for long COVID. And that includes the NIH's Recover Project, the CDC's Inspire Project, and actually working with the VA, who has produced some very innovative research about long COVID evaluation and treatment. Though we do not yet fully understand the impacts of long COVID, HHS is dedicated to working with our pediatric colleagues, caring for impacted children right here in Connecticut and across the country to better understand how long COVID impacts child growth and development across the pediatric age spectrum. Work with our colleagues at the CDC National Center for Immunization and Respiratory Disease is using the Overcoming COVID-19 Network to investigate neurological and psychological sequelae in children after hospitalization for MISC, multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children. The NIH has an initiative to predicting viral associated inflammatory disease severity in children with laboratory diagnostics and artificial intelligence or prevail kids which is promoting research on ways to rapidly diagnose MISC and identify those with, at risk for long COVID infection. Just a few weeks ago, the NIH awarded eight research grants to refine new technologies for early diagnosis of severe illness uh, resulting from COVID-19 infection. And I wanna thank your chair of pediatrics, Dr. Juan Salazar, for his leadership role in this effort at Connecticut Children's Hospital as one of the eight grantees. We don't yet have a complete picture of the medical implications from COVID, but this research will help us get there. 
The final thing I'd like to, 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 to talk about today, though, is mental health in general. So mental health of children and adolescents is something that I have done for many years in my role in adolescent medicine and pediatrics at, at uh, first at Mount Sinai and then at Penn State, and then as the Physician General and Secretary of Health of Pennsylvania, and now as the Assistant Secretary for Health. We have a clear picture of the mental health challenges and, and impacts of the pandemic for the people that you serve right here at Connecticut Children's. And some of the data here draws on Surgeon General Murthy's Youth Mental Health Advisory that I mentioned earlier. Now, setting the stage, there were significant mental health challenges before the pandemic. At that time, mental health challenges were already the leading cause of disability and poor life outcomes in young people, with up to one in five children aged three to 17 in the US with a reported mental, emotional, developmental, or behavioral condition. In 2016, 7.7 .7 million children with treatable mental health disorders, of that number, about half did not receive adequate treatment. In recent years, national surveys of major, have shown major increases in mental health symptoms, including depression and suicidal ideation. From 2009 to 2019, the proportion of high school students reporting persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness increased by 40%. The share considering attempting suicide increased by 36%. The share with, the, the, with a suicidal plan increased by 44%. Emergency department rates significantly increased. And tragically, in, in 2020, there were more than 6,600 deaths by suicide in the age group 10 to 24. So on top of that, all, that already significant burden of mental health challenges, we add the COVID-19 pandemic. During the pandemic, children, adolescents, and youth faced unprecedented challenges. The pandemic dramatically changed their world in terms of their attending school, interacting with friends, and receiving health care. They missed many opportunities, first days in schools, graduations, um, school plays, and school sports. They might have lost access to physical, physical health care and mental health care. Maybe they had COVID-19 themselves. Maybe their families had COVID-19. Maybe they or their families had long COVID. Research covering 80,000 youth globally found that depressive and anxiety symptoms doubled during the pandemic. Negative emotions or behaviors such as impulsivity and irritability increased. Pandemic-related measures reduced in-person interactions among children, friends, social supports, which made it harder to recognize the signs and symptoms of child abuse, especially in the school setting. Young people also experienced the national reckoning over race, in term, including the murder of George Floyd, COVID-related violence against Asian Americans, and an increasing polarized political dialogue. We cannot and should not think of the mental health challenges of COVID-19 in isolation, however. We should think of youth mental health holistically and consider the pandemic an additional major stressor on top of the already challenging so one of the most important steps we can take to support youth and adolescents and their families is to recognize that mental health is an essential part of overhealth. That is something I've worked on my entire career, that intersection between physical health and mental health. Mental health conditions are real, common, and treatable, and they, those patients and their families deserve our support, compassion, and care. And we have to, to get rid of the stigma associated with mental health and the evaluation and treatment of mental health. And that includes, of course, um, uh, substance use disorders 
and we've seen obviously a significant increase in terms of um, of overdoses uh, during the pandemic, up to 107,000 people dying in a 12-month period, uh, the most, most recent data from the CDC, and uh, a recent increase in terms of young people dying as well. This must be reflected in how we communicate and prioritize health and mental health. And I think that needs to be communicated, again, to the public, not just within your expert children's hospital, not just among our faculty and our staff, and even the patients and families, but to the general public. The genuine causes and symptoms of youth mental health need to be explained better in terms of popular discourse. And, and the messaging has to improve. This is true of the appropriate interventions for children and adolescent and youth mental health as well. So what are some of the practical steps that we can take to support youth mental health? In addition to the, 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 the bills and the uh, grants that we were talking about before, we need to empower youth and their families to recognize and manage and learn from difficult emotions. And in terms of building stronger relationships with peers and supportive adults, practice techniques to manage emotions, taking care of body and mind, being attentive to use social media and technology carefully and judiciously. Surgeon General just spoke out about this in the last month. For families and caregivers, this means addressing their own mental health and substance use issues and being positive role models for children. Children, as we know, they don't just learn from what we say, they learn from what they see and what we do as adults. It's important to support the mental health of children and youth in educational, community, childcare, and legal settings, creating safe, positive, and affirming educational environments, expanding program that promotes healthy development, such as social and emotional learning, and providing the continuum of supports to meet the social, emotional, behavioral, and mental health needs of children and youth. This, of course, means expanding and supporting the early childhood and education workforce. It is critical to address the economic and social barriers that contribute to poor mental health for young people, families, and caregivers, reducing child poverty, and improving access to quality childcare, childcare services, education, healthy food, affordable health care, stable housing, and safe environments. These are, of course, the social determinants of health. To me, all of these issues are health issues. Really, across the federal government, in terms of the different departments, to me, almost all of their activities are health issues as we consider the social determinants of health. Timely data needs in research to identify and respond to youth mental health needs needs to be collected more efficiently and rapidly. We need more integrated real-time data infrastructure understanding youth mental health trends. We need to understand the relationship with, between technology and mental health, both the, 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 the opportunities and the challenges and the risks of technology and particularly social media. We also need to reflect that our health system today is not set up so well to optimally support the mental health and well-being of our children. So I'm, I'm sure that you have seen this over the last number of years in terms of the number of children requiring mental health care in your emergency departments and in your clinics. And so again, that integration of physical and mental health needs to be supported. That is something that we are working on across HHS, uh, particularly with my office, SAMHSA, HRSA, um, uh, CMS as well, to, to support the integration of physical and mental health, to support more mental health professionals um, in your primary care clinics, perhaps in your specialty clinics, hub and spoke models, and more. 
We need to screen children for mental health challenges and risk factors, including adverse childhood experiences or ACEs. That screening can be done in schools, it might be done in the primary care setting, might be done in emergency departments and other settings. The American Academy of Pediatrics offers tools and resources for the screening process, and there are other tools available as well. We should identify and address the mental health needs of parents, caregivers, and other family members, because of course that significantly impacts um, their children and their adolescents. We should combine the efforts of clinical staff with trusted community partners and child serving systems, including those in child welfare and the juvenile justice system. We should build multidisciplinary teams to implement services that are tailored to the needs of children and their families. These, of course, need to be culturally appropriate, offered in multiple languages, including sign language, and delivered by a diverse mental health and physical health workforce. And we have to support the well-being of mental health workers, community leaders, public health workers as well. That also has been emphasized by our Surgeon General. And of course, the best treatment is prevention. That's foundational to pediatrics, and that is no uh, no less true in mental health than it is in physical health. Implement trauma-informed care principles and other prevention strategies to improve care for all youth, including those with a history of diversity. I want to emphasize the role of legal supports here and highlight the Connecticut Children's Medical Legal Partnership Project. The MLPP attorneys provide legal advocacy for low-income families. The program operates at Connecticut Children's and Yale New Haven Children's Hospital, as well as other locations, there is no charge for services. Clinicians can refer patients when legal issues come up in the course of their medical visit. The referrals are received from pediatric and family medicine providers and an MLPP clinic and walking clinics as well. And lawyers working to project for the project uh, represent clients in matters including Medicaid advocacy, public benefits, disability rights, teen legal rights, educational rights, housing, utility protection, immigration and refugee status, and more. So this is the heart of the message that I have for you today. We cannot think of our role in medical care strictly in terms of the medical treatment of our patients or their families. We must think of our role in preventing patients from falling through the cracks in the first place. We must think of what we can do out there beyond the confines of the children's hospital, beyond the confines of the clinic and the wards. We must think of what we can do in terms of a conceptual change. There is no limit to we, what we can accomplish. In spite of all the, the, uh, the, the challenges that we face as a society, despite all the challenges that at times I face as the Assistant Secretary for Health, I am a positive and optimistic person. And I believe that working together as pediatricians and as other healthcare providers and mental health providers that care for children and their families, who better then to advocate for these children and families, to advocate them in, the, in local communities and statewide, not just nationally. I think that to change hearts and minds in terms of the challenges that we face, whether that's in terms of mental health issues, in terms of health equity, in terms of health equity, again, across that whole range of diversity, the myriad aspects of the tapestry of diversity that makes our country great, that we can be advocates for that change, advocates for care and compassion. We can do that as pediatricians and as people who work at children's hospitals. Thank you very much, and I'm pleased to answer your questions. Thank you. Thank you so much, Admiral Levine. That was, uh, that was inspirational in so many ways. Really appreciate it. Uh, we have uh, two forms of questions. We actually have uh, a number of people here in the audience. Uh, this is uh, 
the first time since the pandemic begun that we've actually invited people to the uh, studio and we have questions from the audience as well uh, uh, that is logging in remotely. So I'm going to ask Dr. Fink, our surgeon in chief, to ask the first question. Hi, Admiral. Thank you so much um, for that talk. Very, very helpful. The question that I have is in children with obesity, we see the significant correlation with mental health challenges. It is extremely difficult to get insurance companies to cover some of the required elements to optimize treatment for these children. Do you see any relief on the horizon in having insurance companies see this and, and helping with the access to care for these children? I see improvements in terms of the integration of physical and mental health, and that would include the challenges of young people with obesity and the importance of mental health evaluation and care. And so again, there are many different um, activities that we're doing across HHS in this regard. Uh, I'll mention particularly the, the work being done through HRSA in terms of integrating physical and mental health in community health centers, but then um, also in terms of the workforce and, uh, and grants to support more mental health professionals and interacting with, uh, with medical professionals. Um, I see this um, through ARC, which does research in terms of, of the quality of care. And I do see this work happening in terms of in CMS. And that's where it gets to your payment question, because of course the Center for Medicaid and Medicare Services um, uh, influences the, um, the, the coverage across Medicare and Medicaid in the, in the marketplace, but then into the private sector as well. I don't have a specific answer in terms of mental health care on, uh, on, for children who are suffering from obesity. Uh, we can check that um, and we can get back to you about that specific question. But I think this is improving in terms of access to care and funding for that care um, uh, throughout HHS. Thank you. Uh, from Dr. Ken Spiegelman, uh, one of our pediatricians in the community, uh, thank you for a wonderful talk. In your experience, what models work best with integrating mental health in the primary care setting? Pediatric providers have taken on the majority of our family's behavioral health needs, but often with limited, timely, and affordable resources. Absolutely. I think that there are a number of different factors that are very important to this. First, as I think that primary care providers need to be better trained in terms of mental health care. Um, so I think that pediatricians um, need better training in medical school and particularly in pediatric residency programs uh, in terms of providing basic um, uh, mental health services um, and, and, and basic psychopharmacology. Um, so, uh, you know, if you have a teenager who um, might be depressed, uh, you might refer them to a therapist, maybe even within your clinic. And then I think that that it'll be incumbent upon the teenager if that person needs medication to be able to pr provide basic medication, fluoxetine, 20 milligrams, or something very simple and basic as that. But I do think that, of course, both for counseling and for psychiatric care, um, that resources need to be better integrated with primary care in all of different settings. There are many different ways to do that. I don't know if there's one best way. I think a lot of it will depend upon uh, where it's being done and the resources of that clinic or program. So, for example, um, you might have um, psychologists, uh, child and adolescent psychologists at many different levels of training embedded in a primary care clinic so that the pediatrician or family physician can say, yes, we need some counseling for this child or adolescent, and um, we're going we're gonna to have you see you know, this counselor, and they're right down the hall, or we're going to make an appointment tomorrow, and they're right here in the, in the, uh, physically in the building. Um, I think that that might be the most efficient way to do that. Um, and I think that's what they're trying to do more and more at HRSA in the community health centers. Uh, and I, I know that that's being done in some academic medical centers and other community clinics. It might al always be possible, especially in, in rural areas where it's not really possible to have the person in that clinic. 
I think telehealth authors, uh, offers a lot of opportunities is that you might um, have them see uh, the therapist through a telehealth visit, maybe at the clinic or at through their home through a telehealth visit. Um, and I think there's a tremendous opportunity in terms of that. We are working to uh, inculcate some of the uh, telehealth programs that happened during the pandemic uh, to, uh, to continue and exist even after the public health emergency is over, which will happen in May that now that we know, uh, as long as nothing changes in terms of the pandemic. Um, I think that telehealth has its own health equity issues because uh, uh, the family has to have the, uh, the resources to have um, the, the technology to be able to do telehealth. Uh, and then also you need to have either broadband or, or uh, cellular access in order to do telehealth. Um, although you can even do it through landlines in terms of call only telehealth and telemental health. So I think that telemental health is really important. Um, there are other types of programs. I know at Penn State before I left, they were, uh, they were putting therapists in the clinic uh, for primary care, but they also had uh, many different um, clinics in the network and even beyond the network that could call in to talk to a child psychiatrist if they needed it. And they could, uh, they could get a sort of a, uh, um, a curbside, a formal curbside consult uh, about a patient. And then either the patient would need to be seen at Penn State Psychiatry, Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, or the, the psychiatrist could give, um, could give advice and it was all documented and, and formalized. So lots of different ways to do that. Uh, another program I'd like to highlight is, is Project uh, ECHO. Project ECHO was developed um, uh, in New Mexico uh, by Dr. Arroyo, and it was developed actually for hepatitis C uh, because there's the University of New Mexico and then there's the rest of New Mexico, which is uh, quite, quite rural. Uh, but many states have rural areas. Connecticut has rural areas. And this is a, a educational module where um, specialists that you might hear at Connecticut Children's can educate primary care providers throughout Connecticut and beyond uh, with like a 10 session um, learning collaborative about a specific topic, which can include youth mental health. So I think that there's lots of ways to do this. And we, I think that you need to personalize uh, the best way to do this with, um, with, with the, the clinical circumstances. Not only, however, for, for primary care, in specialty care, um, we started at Penn State to integrate therapists into specialty care clinics, uh, pediatric diabetes clinic, pediatric oncology clinics, uh, pediatric CF clinic um, as well, uh, because those kids often needed a lot of counseling, and uh, that was proceeding as well. So lots of different models. Thank you. I think uh, our, our head of psychology here is very happy with your answer. And, um, you know, she is populating Connecticut Children's with a lot of psychologists, which is really good. Uh, question uh, from Dr. Priya uh, Pulwani, who's here in the audience. She's the medical director of the gender program and co-director of the Clinic for Variations of Sexual Development. Priya. Thank you for a talk that's both um, inspirational and practical, Admiral. Um, in my clinic, with the mental health crisis that you addressed, it's the additional burden of reassuring my patients in this current climate of um, attacks against pediatric hospitals that provide gender-affirming hormone care such as ours, what can I say to my patients to reassure them of their fear that they're gonna lose care? Sure. Um, which is a real fear, and I don't wanna give them false optimism, but I want to be optimistic. What can I say to them? Thanks. Sure. So you're entirely correct. We are facing significant challenges in terms of providing evidence-based standard of care treatment to transgender and gender non-binary um, youth and their families. Um, and those youth and families have been targeted for discrimination, harassment, and abuse. And as you said, 
Um, the providers have been targeted as well, even at expert children's hospitals, um, such as yours at Connecticut Children's Hospital. But I've heard the same thing at Yale. I've heard the same thing at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, at Boston Children's Hospital, and actually throughout the country. I think it is unconscionable that expert children's hospitals are being targeted for this abuse. It is the same providers that take care of kids that come with RSV, uh, the same, you know, the same type of providers that are providing care uh, as you suggest, it might be the same pediatric endocrinologist that is providing care for kids with diabetes that is providing the endocrine care for these uh, transgender and gender non-binary kids. Um, I think that these attacks are ideologically and politically motivated. Uh, I think they're being done primarily for political purposes throughout the country. Um, and I think that uh, we need to stand up to these attacks and to provide the expert care that we that we know through standard of care evidence-based treatment. I do applaud you uh, for those working on the front lines in those programs, helping those youth and their families, for the courage to be able to continue to do that. And I applaud the hospitals for standing behind you, the hospitals and health systems and uh, medical schools and, and universities and others that are standing behind you. Um, I would take any actual threat seriously, and I would contact law enforcement. You can also contact the FBI who is looking at this, but I would contact your local law enforcement, and I would take any threat to you, to your staff or your patients and their families very, very seriously. Um, but I'm a positive and optimistic person, and I choose to be positive and optimistic, and I think that the wheel will turn on this. I think that it's not gonna be politically advantageous. Uh, it wasn't particularly in 2022, and so I think that as we look to all the different elections in 2024, um, I think the next two years are going to be challenging. But I am positive and optimistic and hopeful that the wheel will turn after that um, and that uh, this issue won't be as uh, politically and socially such a minefield. Um, in the meantime, I can say that the children that you serve the, and the young people that you serve, their families and you all as their providers have support at the highest levels of the federal government. President Biden supports you, and he has articulated that support for the children and families on a, uh, frequently. The vice president, Vice President Harris supports you. Across the administration, the departments support you. At the Department of Health and Human Services, our secretary, Secretary Becerra, and I as the Assistant Secretary for Health will support you. And I talk about this topic everywhere I go uh, to get the word out and to emphasize our support for you and the families and the children that you care for. I think that the wheel will turn. Um, but in many states across the country right now, it is really, really challenging. Um, the I know the Justice Department is looking at that. Our Office of Civil Rights is looking at that. And we'll do everything we can legally to try to prevent these laws and actions. But in our federalist system of government, states do have a lot of authority uh, in, in, in this realm in terms of laws in their states. Um, I think that, you know, we were talking about the social determinants of health. Really, in this regard, in regards to gender-affirming care for trans and non-binary kids and, and their families, uh, and in regards to re women's reproductive health rights, which is also a big adolescent medicine issue uh, in terms of, uh, of family planning and other reproductive um, rights that people need, um, this, the legal and political environment of the state that you live in is itself now a social determinant of health. I was in Minnesota with a secretary where abortion is legalized, and then I went to Wisconsin where it is illegal based upon a law in 1849. 
Um, and the same would be true in many states uh, in terms of gender affirming care. You could go to uh, Florida and it's illegal and you can get on a plane and come here where it is legal. Um, I think that you live in a state in Connecticut where it is unlikely uh, that, 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 um, that those um, regressive, negative and discriminatory laws will pass um, and, be, and be implemented. So I, I think you can offer that reassurance. But I think it is important for all of us together uh, in this in our pediatric community um, to advocate at the local and the state level to change hearts and minds about this important issue. Thank you for that uh, wonderful response, Admiral. Um, question from one of our uh, HIV caseworkers, Nilda Fernandez, who I work with. Thank you for this great talk. As a community health worker and social worker working with pediatric HIV care and prevention, you're speaking to my heart. Can you touch on violence prevention, gun, intimate partner violence as part of physical and mental health care? Sure. Well, violence in our society is, is also a, a very significant public health issue. And that includes, includes all forms of violence. It includes school violence. It includes domestic violence. It includes sexual violence. It includes gun violence. It includes violence against the self, as I've been discussing, or suicide. And so I think these are all very big public health issues. Um, we have actually a new senior advisor, um, is Lynn Rosenthal, who is our senior advisor for um, sexual and gender-based violence. And so we are working really closely across um, HHS and really across the administration um, on, on this issue uh, with that public health perspective. Um, and so um, we also, uh, I co-chair the Human Trafficking Task Force uh, with the uh, head of the uh, administration for children and families. Um, and we are all working together in terms of these, these horrific acts of violence that have happened too often in our society. Um, so I think that these are very important mental health issues. I know from my work with teens and young adults and adolescent medicine and eating disorders that that we did see patients with eating disorders that had suffered um, uh, domestic violence, that had suffered sexual violence, um, and it can have significant mental health challenges, depression, uh, anxiety, PTSD, and eating disorders. And so the mental health impacts are significant, and we have to, as we do in public health, look upstream in terms of prevention of the acts of violence themselves. Thank you. Uh, from uh, uh, Dr. Zellneritis, a pediatric neurologist, former re residency program director, the question is, the mental part of health has always been subject to discrimination and made worse by the lack of effective care. What has fundamentally changed and what can we, can we do to create further change that will facilitate the transition of the mental components of health into the overall health? Well, I think that one of the things that's changed is that, uh, is that um, in the public health arena, um, at the local, state, and now, of course, at the federal level where I am, we recognize that, um, that we recognize the stigma uh, that has been placed in terms of mental health challenges and the disease of addiction as well. And so we're working to address it in a holistic way, and we have funding to do that. Um, Congress has been uh, worked in a bipartisan way in terms of funding for mental health challenges. And so uh, with some of the funding that I discussed, but there is funding that is going to SAMHSA, which is the primary um, office, the primary division at HHS that works on this, but then also through HRSA, through CMS, um, and really across uh, through um, uh, NIH and NIDA um, and, and, and NIMH, CDC looking at mental health issues. So I think that we are looking towards that integration of physical mental health in terms of research, um, in terms of uh, and in terms of supports and services. So I think that there has been 
uh, more money and more support than ever uh, for this issue. And we hope to have um, fruit from our labor. Similar being uh, the, uh, from Alex Gershma, one of our pediatricians, there have been multi multiple attempts to bridge the gap, including developmental pediatrics. However, a continuing impediment relates to the effects of fee-for-service. Do you see pediatric behavioral health needs pushing for value-based care to better incentivize all to collaborate? Um, so, yes, um, I, I see that um, really across the board. I know that CMS and its innovation arm, uh, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, are looking at value-based care uh, for many types of services, um, and that would include uh, mental health services and behavioral and developmental health services. I don't have any specific information about behavioral and developmental services, but I know that we are looking uh, and working to increase uh, the, the amount of value-based care that is, uh, that is given in the system um, uh, increasingly over time. Uh, question from the audience here, Kevin Barab, who leads our Injury Prevention Center. Kevin? Hi, Admiral. Uh, what can institutions like hospitals like our own or schools do to support and encourage communities to be supportive of LGBTQ plus youth? You know, understanding your comment that suicide risk is in large part due to the targeting of kids uh, in their communities. Well, I think we all need to work together to do that. I, I think first we need to recognize um, that that LGBTQ plus kids are being, and youth in particular, but people in general are being targeted for ideological and political purposes. It's specifically uh, transgender and gender non-binary youth, but not exclusively. In many states, um, such as Florida's Don't Say Gay Bill, actually the whole community is being targeted. Um, and I think that, um, that we need to recognize that, and then we need to uh, work together to push back against that ideology and that politically motivated discrimination. Um, so I, that's why I think we need to come together, and this needs to be done locally. It needs to be done in communities, in schools. Uh, it needs to be done statewide, in addition to, to, to um, uh, nationwide work. It needs to be done, again, locally and through the states uh, to push back, uh, and from our perspective, to push back um, with compassion, to push, push, back, push back with care, and in terms of gender-affirming care, we push back within the, the science of evidence-based standard of care treatment. Um, so I think we need to change hearts and minds you know, it's very challenging now in, in our in our environment with the impact of media and particularly the impact of social media uh, that that tends to provide such disinformation and sometimes uh, to to uh, to serve as a conduit to that hate speech. And so we need to push back at all different levels against this and we need to do it. We need to bond together to do that. We need to do it with faith leaders. We need to do it with businesses and with schools at, a, at the local level, the community level and the state level. Thank you. Question from the audience and uh, Dr. Jody Terranova, our brand new uh, deputy <laughs> commissioner for the health department. Jody. Thank you. Thank you, Admiral Levine, for coming to Connecticut today. I wanted to talk a little bit about school-based health centers because I think those are an extremely important resource for children in Connecticut um, to access behavioral and mental health services. We have a fairly strong network, but it's not, it's not in all of our schools. We're very fortunate that the Connecticut legislature passed a number of bills last year that will increase funding to help us broaden access in schools uh, to really meet children where they're at and provide that service for working families that don't have to take time out to take children to appointments and kids can really get access care um, in the school setting. We have 
funding that's, that's coming, but I'm wondering what's happening at the federal level to help continue to support school-based health centers, and if there is really cross-collaboration at federal agencies like we have here in Connecticut with DPH and our Department of Mental Health and our School Department of Education working together. Um, what's happening at the federal level that we can look towards? Well, uh, you know, that's a, I'm a strong supporter of school-based health. Again, coming from the field of adolescent medicine, uh, there are many um, high school and junior high school school-based clinics. I trained in one in New York City um, and um, uh, worked to try to set one up in Harrisburg, although um, for political and ideological purposes, it was unsuccessful. But uh, I think that school-based health clinics are great at all different levels. Um, I think a lot of that work is state by state. Um, uh, of course, across HHS, we collaborate um, in terms of, of uh, that integration of physical and mental health. Um, we have had contact with the Department of Education, but maybe not as much as we could in terms of school-based care. So I'm gonna take that uh, as a good recommendation that I'll be checking on. Thank you, appreciate that. Thank you, uh, Admiral, this is a long comment, but I'll shorten the, the question and from Larry Scherzer, one of our pediatricians. Uh, the question is, how do, we, how do we integrate mental health services training in the pediatric programs? Well, I think that that's really important, um, you know, and I think it needs to be done uh, for all primary care specialties. So whether it's pediatrics, um, whether it is uh, internal medicine or family medicine, I think there needs to be more integration in the residency programs. Um, so, you know, we have reached out to the AAMC in terms of medical schools. We have reached out to the ACGME in terms of, of residency programs. Um, you might, as you might expect, they are a little um, reluctant to have a lot of federal, you know, federal interference in, in their activities and, and uh, you know, mandates. But we certainly have talked to them in terms of uh, in terms of our recommendations, and that would be for general mental health services as well as in terms of addiction services. But I think that is going to be the programs themselves uh, that need to work through uh, the AGME and and uh, um, and and uh, work in terms of of um, of, of of working to. Uh, design and then expand that type of education for the residents. Um, so I think it's going to need to be something that, it, that comes from within, uh, as opposed to something without a law from Congress that I'm going to be able to impose um, at the federal level. I can certainly make my recommendations, but it, it, I can't make them do it. Uh, but I think that it is, it is absolutely so important. We will never have enough child psychiatrists to see every teenager with, with has depression and needs maybe a therapist and fluoxetine 20. We won't. We're never going to have, I mean, we are trying to build the number of child and adolescent psychiatrists and psychologists. And we have, you know, uh, loan repayment programs that are coming through HRSA. And they will bear fruit in four, six, eight years. Um, but, but still, I can guarantee you, for every teenager that, had, that, you know, that needs um, some counseling, and, and you're never going to have enough child psychiatrists. So I think it's going to have to happen in... Uh, in pediatric training and in family medicine training and the same in terms of internal medicine. Same with ADHD medication. We need to be really, you know, very intentional and in, in about ADHD medication, but that should, for basics, that should be in, in a pediatric office um, with then referrals for complicated patients and patients that aren't responding or having problems. Thank you. Uh, the question from Dr. Melissa Santos, who's uh, the head of the Division of Pediatric Psychology, also clinical director of the Obesity Center and associate chair for diversity, equity, and inclusion. Melissa? 
Um, thank you so much for just an amazing lecture. One of the things that you talked about was taking care of our healthcare workers. And much like our kids, we know that our healthcare workers were struggling long before COVID and they haven't been immune to the mental health pandemic, the racism pandemic, the COVID pandemic, that's all affected our healthcare workers. Here at Connecticut Children's, we've been trying to do a lot of things to take care of our um, team members. We were fortunate to have a psychologist hired to provide free services to all of our team members here at the hospital. We've also launched debriefing programs and other uh, things to try to help our team members and be more um, proactive versus being reactive. I'm wondering what we may see federally or otherwise to sort of support our healthcare workers' emotional state as well. Well, I think it's a very important point. I think that that healthcare workers have really been, were challenged before the pandemic, but have been challenged like nothing else during and now um, and during the pandemic and now as we work towards the end of the public health emergency and many different challenges from patients with COVID, uh, the impact on the family members, RSV um, in, in, in pediatric hospitals, uh, the mental health issues of the patients and families that we're seeing, um, and you know, the toll that COVID, uh, the pandemic took on the healthcare workers themselves and their families. Um, so the Surgeon General has spoken out about this. Um, he has a specific advisory about this. And uh, I think that we will try to lead in, in terms of this and certainly applaud the programs that you've had at Connecticut Children's. And I think that the Surgeon General will be leading with best practices. The last question, uh, Admiral, you've been uh, holding steady for a whole hour. Um, <laughs> this, uh, it's By pediatric one. training, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's easier than chief residency yeah. for sure. Yeah, that's right. um, how is the shortage of stimulant medications currently being addressed at the federal level? Well, you know, it's interesting. We've had a number of different supply chain issues and shortages, um, uh, you know, exacerbated by the pandemic that has included of course as you know uh, baby formula uh, that has included amoxicillin uh, that has included other types of medications and in terms of stimulant medications you know um, uh, hhs has some role uh, particularly through the fda but but not a primary role in terms of the the production methods of pharmaceutical companies. But I know that uh, that Director Califf has reached out and he's been working on this issue. I know they've been trying to work it with other agencies across the federal government and the Department of Commerce and others um, in, in terms of this to, to shore up the supply chain and the manufacturing for the medications that our patients, that, that our patients need. Um, I, I think it is, it is important, however, that we be really careful and judicious as I know pediatricians are and child analysts, psychiatrists, and behavioral health uh, and developmental pediatricians in terms of prescriptions. Uh, we have seen some increases, not so much for youth, but for, um, uh, for young adults in terms of specifically prescriptions of some stimulant medications. I know uh, that that has been of concern for, for, for some of the agencies and something I think we need to look at. It hasn't been as much for our patient population, but for young adults where it has pretty spiked in terms of, of uh, prescription of some stimulants. And I think we need to be, all need to be, you know, as we do clinically cautious and, and, um, and intentional in terms of our prescriptions. Thank you very much, Admiral. This is an outstanding grand rounds. Uh, getting a lot of, uh, of kudos here through the, uh, through the chat and in the audience here. Um, uh, I, I do have a final question. Are, sure. you rooting, are you rooting for Kansas City or Philadelphia? Um, well, you know, so um, I'm from the greater Boston area, all right? So I grew up in the greater Boston area, and my father had season tickets to the Pats his entire life. Um, and then my family bought the season tickets after he passed, and, and someone from the family goes to every single, almost every single Patriots game. So my team are the, are the Patriots. Now, uh, there you go. And I'm I getting a lot of applause here in the audience. Because I'm in New England. 
Um, uh, and it really is in memory and honor of my father, who this was his passion uh, for the Patriots and the Sox. Um, and so, uh, um, but I've been in Pennsylvania for 30 years. Um, and so uh, unless, the, unless the Patriots are paying the Eagles, in which case I'll root for the Patriots, I'm going to root for the Eagles. There you go. So your true colors have shown here today. And, yeah. And so, you know, I, I've learned from my environment in politics in terms of how to answer these questions. And, you know, and, there we go. Yeah, I, will, I will not ask you. I will not ask you about the commanders. You know? yeah. No questions about the commanders. We'll leave that for a different time. Uh, but but for the team members, this please on Friday, f wear your favorite fo football jersey, anything high school, college or professional football during the I think we'll see a lot of Patriot jerseys. Uh, that mm -hmm. sort of a, seems to be heavy around here. And then on Tuesday, Join us for fetal surgery, past, present, and future uh, by Dr. Tim Carmelholm, our new uh, head of the fetal program. So again, uh, Admiral, thank you very much for the audience here, and uh, we really, really appreciate your service and what you do for children. I'm very proud to have you there representing all of us. So thank you very much, and congratulations on a great Grand Rounds. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Grand Rounds. For the most recent updates, please consider subscribing or find us on our Facebook group, Connecticut Children's Continuing Medical Education, or online at ConnecticutChildrens.org slash podcast slash grand dash rounds.